1984. I was all of 14 years old and I was mesmerized by the 23rd Olympiad happening in Los Angeles, California. You see, we have some amazing Olympic runners, especially back then, and Mary Decker Slaney was one of the best. She held records for, from everything from the 800 meters all the way to the three mile. And so she was the odds-on favorite to win the race. But as most of you who are a little older know, maybe you were watching a South African runner named Zola Budd, who was running barefoot, as they do, apparently, as she does, trips Mary Decker. She falls into the infield injured, and she does not finish the race. Well, Mary Decker held the Olympic trials record for 32 years until this last year. When a young gal from Vermont grew up on a farm, well, she, she actually broke Mary Decker's record. And she had a very similar experience on the track. Take a look. But it is Puria Saint-Pierre up against McGee in the Olympic trials in the women's 1500. Top three get a birth to Tokyo. Osika has lost that third spot. Ellie Puria Saint-Pierre has now broken away. She's in a league of her own in this race. And she's going to become an Olympian. Ellie Puria Saint-Pierre is off to Tokyo. Winning the women's 1500 in 358.03. Let's go back to the start of this race and the physicality in the opening metres. Check this out. Look to the right. Ellie Puria St. Pierre. You know, it was like everyone just cut in so quick and they ended up bumping her right off the track and she is not happy about it. I can't imagine what went through her mind and the adrenaline surge. So Ellie St. Superior St. Pierre, it's a hard word to say, wins the race even though she gets bumped off course. And as one who has run track and cross country, I can tell you those elbows can get in the way. And when you find an elbow, you generally find the ground. And like Mary Decker Slaney, she never got up. But spiritually, it's also true. Paul, the Apostle Paul, loved to use this idea, this analogy of running. And he uses that in Galatians 5 when he says, you were running such a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? This idea of someone elbow, elbowing you off the course and things becoming difficult, this happens to us all the time. And as we're going through this series that I'm calling Lessons from Three Kings, we are on to our third king, Solomon, and I wish that I had better news for you about Solomon. He starts his race very well, but the finish, well, is pretty sketchy. We certainly can learn from his life. He's the wisest man that ever lived, the one who was given wisdom from God. And yet, what we're going to see today is having wisdom, which is knowledge applied, doesn't always mean that you actually live that out and choose to obey the truth, as Galatians says. 
So as we look at Solomon's life this morning, we're going to see a little bit like Mary Decker. He gets shoved off the track and he does not finish well. This morning, I would like us to look at Solomon as a lesson for us. Because Solomon starts in a very wholehearted way, wholeheartedly following the Lord. And yet the cracks come in his heart and he ends up with a divided heart. And I believe that's a challenge for all of us to ask the Lord to shine his light on our hearts. That he might search our hearts and try us and see if there's any cracks that need to be filled in and healed. So that we don't go about living our life half-heartedly for God. Well, Solomon, well, he has quite an adventure. And so I'm just going to show you a two-minute clip from the Bible Project, kind of summarizing Solomon's wild ride. Take a look. The books of First and Second Kings, although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom, and God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David, and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focus on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple. It opens with two chapters about the kingdom passing from the aging David to his son Solomon. And David's final words to Solomon, they're very similar to those of Moses and Joshua and Samuel to the people. It's a call to remain faithful to the commands of the covenant and to give allegiance to the God of Israel alone. But David's words ring somewhat hollow here because David and Solomon then go on to conspire how they're going to consolidate this new kingdom through a whole series of political assassinations. It's not off to a great start. Solomon's brightest moment comes when he asks God for wisdom to lead Israel. And he even completes David's dream to make a temple for the God of Israel. Here the story actually stops and describes the design of this temple in detail, just like the tabernacle design in the Torah. There's all these gold and jewels and depictions of angels and fruit trees. It's all symbolism echoing back to the Garden of Eden. It's the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence dwells with his people. But no sooner does Solomon finish the temple that he makes some really horrible choices and the kingdom falls apart. He starts marrying the daughters of other kings, hundreds of them, for political alliances. And then he adopts their gods and introduces the worship of those gods into Israel. Solomon then accumulates huge amounts of wealth. He builds a huge army. He even institutes slave labor for all of his building projects. Now if you go back to the Torah and look at God's guidelines for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon is breaking every one. So by the time that he dies, Solomon resembles Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, more than he does his father David. Yeah, it's going to get messy here for Solomon. Let's take a look, just a quick summary of his life. As you look at 1 Kings, he starts in a wholehearted way serving God. In chapter 1, he becomes the king. In chapter 2, he handles some of his internal affairs. And that was a little messy. And chapter 2, verse 46 says that his, uh, the kingdom was firmly established in his hands. And so 
That seems to be kind of a positive way to talk about the fact that perhaps some of these people needed to be dispatched. I'm not sure exactly all of the goodness in that, but that was happening. And then 1 Kings 3, God appears to Solomon and while he's also, Solomon's also married Pharaoh's daughter for diplomatic reasons, he asks for wisdom. Solomon asks for wisdom from God instead of a long life, instead of riches And yet God says, since you've chosen wisely, I will give you all these other things as well. And then he contributes to academia. I imagine him being a professor with a long robe. And so uh, he writes 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. So he's a songwriter. He teaches about plants and animal life. This guy has a lot of wisdom to share with the world. And the world is literally showing up at his door to hear what wisdom he has. Now, some cracks begin to form in Solomon's heart. And I see this in the next section as we look at 1 Kings chapter 6. We see that Solomon builds the temple for the Lord, and that's great. It takes about seven years to do so. It's a beautiful structure. But he doesn't actually finish the furniture for the inside. Therefore, it sits vacant and it's not useful until after he finishes his palace and his wife's palace, which took about 13 years. Well, we're beginning to see the cracks in his heart. We're beginning to see perhaps that Solomon's wife and his building projects are more important than the worship of God. In chapter 9, God appears to him a second time. But this time, God's not asking, what do you want? God's bringing a warning. A warning about the dangers of a divided heart. Just as his father David explained to him on his deathbed that he he must stay faithful to God, the one true God. Solomon is warned that if he follows after other gods, the kingdom will be taken from him. So, the aim of God for any leader, for any king in Israel, for any Christian who follows Jesus today, is to be a wholehearted follower of him. And, really, God is really clear. He sets down some guidelines, some rules, some commandments about how a king in Israel should function. Let's take a look at them very quickly. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 says this. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and you've taken possession of it and you've settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you one who is not a brother Israelite. So far, so good. Next verse, verse 16. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, more horses. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives. Or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. 
Let's take a look at the report card. We're going to find it in 1 Kings 10. I've just cherry-picked the verses that have to do with these things on how Solomon does. 1 Kings 10, verse 14. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. Weird number, but we're going to skip over that and tell you it's 25 tons of gold every year. He's got so much gold, he's making like silverware and goblets and ceremonial shields that hang on the wall because he's like, what am I going to do with all of this gold? King Solomon was greater, verse 23 says, in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. Verse 26, Samuel accumul- Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. That's a few. Solomon's horses were, of course, imported from Egypt. The one place he wasn't supposed to import them from. Yep, it's like he's trying to do this on purpose. He's trying to do everything. It's like opposite day. Then in 1 Kings 11, it gives us that last piece of Deuteronomy 17, what he must not do. And that's what we'll turn this morning and look at this first 13 verses. 1 Kings chapter 11 gives us that third way that, God, that he violated God's commands in Deuteronomy 17. And ultimately, spoiler alert, it has to do with how many wives that he had. Verse 1, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. That was kind of his first wife. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were all from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. And nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. When I think about Solomon, I think about excess. Like he did everything supersized. Even his sin was supersized, right? (laughs) And when I think about how many wives he ended up with, I think, well, maybe they were just a commodity to him. But this verse is a little silver lining. He held fast to them in love. There was attachment and love there. Unfortunately, that love is going to lead him to create peace at all costs and sacrifice his relationship with God to please his wives. Next verse. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Concubines are uh, wives of non-royal birth. Just want to make sure that you can prove to everybody, I can take, I can marry anybody. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. So Solomon directly disobeys God and accumulates, I'll call it Pharaoh's daughter plus 699, plus 300 if you want to go ahead and count them, for an even 1,000. Andy Stanley said this, once joked about this and said, 700 wives? Think about that, 700 mothers-in-law. What was he thinking? Apparently he wasn't. The message paraphrase says this, King Solomon was obsessed with women. I think Peterson's right. So in an effort to satisfy his own 
lust, his own desire to show power. He collects all these wives. And the wives do exactly what God said they were going to do. Lead him astray. They divide his heart. They begin to crack his heart open so that only half of his heart is devoted to God. How do I know that? Next verse, verse five. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. And verse 7, on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shemash, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their god. So what's the big deal? Some of you are thinking, he's just letting them put statues up. They're not really like, like our one true god. It shouldn't be a big deal you would be wrong. Why? Because these gods are actually animated by demonic spirits that have power, that are leading people astray. They're promising the things that only God is supposed to give, fertility and prosperity, protection. They're replacing the one true God. They're called idols. As I did a little deep dive on these false gods this week, I found that many of them included temple prostitution. So you would go and engage and also sacrificing your children. Every single one has child sacrifice attached to it. God values life. I don't think I have to tell you that. I think you probably know that. He's always been the life giver, the life bringer. Jesus came and offers us life to the fullest. And he wants us to choose life. And this is why we're, we stand fast and firm on condemning abortion. Nobody wants to talk about that, but that's taking a life. We want to see healing and blessing to those who have gone through that. We're not here to judge. We're here to love. But life matters. And these false gods, I had to work really hard to find some pictures I could show you of them because it was like ancient pornography. I was like, oh, wait, I got to click on something else. Most of them had the, the horns of some animal, whether it was a bull or a calf or something like that, but then also a very seductive, illicit kind of engaging in not very appropriate for church kinds of things. Very sexually provocative. Ashtoreth, sometimes called Asherah. You hear about Asherah poles, which are kind of like totem poles, similar where you, they would worship their God. You might know her as Aphrodite. And it's the same evil spirit animating in these different places. In English, her name is Easter. I'm 
gonna mess up your holiday. I'm just giving you a warning. It was interesting this last year, I got an email from one of our people. And I really appreciated it. And it said, why do we have eggs in our egg hunt? What does that have to do with Jesus coming out of the grave? And I thought, oh, it's kind of like a new life and stuff like that. I don't know. I never really think of it, thought about that. Asterisk is a fertility god. And so then there is this syncretism, which means putting together two different things and mixing it up. Where Christians have, we've kind of like, oh, sure, we'll take bunny rabbits and eggs, which are signs of the fertility goddess, and put them right into our celebration of Jesus' resurrection. I didn't even know that till like three days ago. So our decorations are going to change at our house a little bit. Uh, sorry, I just ruined your, uh, all your decorations that you got half price this last year. Um, but this is how easily things can creep in. We don't even know it. The temple to Shamash was uh, built on the Mount of Olives. I can imagine all of these people of Israel coming to worship at the feasts and, and they're going through and they're having to navigate temple prostitutes and child sacrifice as they're trying to go serve the one true God. Mount of Olives is the same place where Jesus ascended up to heaven and one day we're expecting our coming king to arrive in that same place. So he's setting up national shrines to these false gods. Talk about leading others into sin. So what's God's response to all of this? Verse nine, he's not happy. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to know other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. All kings are compared to David. Solomon, his son, and all other kings that come afterwards. By the way, they don't, none of them ever measure up. Two comparisons that I'm going to make with Solomon and David right here. The Lord appears to Solomon twice. It's really powerful. There's nowhere that we see that the Lord overtly appeared to David. I think the Lord was knowing that Solomon was going to struggle and was really wanting to show I'm really real. Second is that Solomon did what David never did, and that was serve false gods. David was a messed up guy. If you've been with us for this series, and if you haven't been, you can go back and listen or watch online. David had all kinds of faults, but David never worshiped a false god. And yet so many kings after Solomon will worship idols and false gods. Some won't. Some will tear down, like Josiah, tear down these high places eventually. Josiah is going to end up, in, later in the book, he's going to tear down these high places that Solomon made. I'm like, oh, I'm so proud of you, Josiah. Good job, buddy. So the Lord becomes angry because Solomon has done this. Verse 11. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my commandment, my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates or your servants. Verse 12. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but I will give him one tribe. 
Judah, for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So God says there are consequences for going after false gods and disobeying. But because I made a promise to your, to your father, David, I'm not going to rip you off the throne right now. You deserve it, Solomon. The most wise man on earth is not engaging his brain. And how many times are we just like him? We know the right thing, and yet we decide to go our own way. Like sheep, we just go astray each to his own way. It was A.B. Simpson. He's the founder of our movement, the Christian and Missionary Alliance. In the late 1800s, who said, a divided heart loses both worlds. And it's true, you can't serve two masters. You will end up loving one and hating the other. And you can't serve this world and the kingdom at the same time. God's looking for wholehearted followers who go after him wholeheartedly. And he knows that there are so many things that begin to crack open our hearts and divide our hearts in this world. I like this quote pointing to the result of living wholeheartedly and, and what the result is. When you yield yourself in complete and wholehearted obedience to God, he can do great things through you. I've had moments in my life where I was living so wholeheartedly and I, was, I could hear God's voice clear. I was more passionate about worship. I was more excited about what he was calling me to. And there's other times when, when I've been kind of half-hearted, where I'm, I'm in conflict, or I'm finding like I'm, I'm getting pulled into the things of this world, and I'm being, or, or I'm getting hooked on something, or, or I'm making choices that are, that are completely apart, or I'm afraid I'm going to rock the boat relationally, so I kind of turn away from God. And if we're honest, some of us, we go, yeah, I know where my, the cracks are. I'm just looking for the Lord to heal those cracks up. There's others of us like, I'm invincible. There is no way there's any cracks in my heart. I got a wholehearted, I'm a wholehearted devotion. To him who stands, let he take heed lest he fall. I just really believe that God wants us to take a look and say, okay, what's rivaling? What's rivaling for that place? Let's say the throne of your heart. What's on the throne? Is there stuff? Or is there people? Are there relationships? Are there things that are more important than God that need to be cleared off? And I hope you don't think you're immune from having your heart cracked and having a divided heart. So what, what keeps us living wholeheartedly or prevents us from being wholehearted? I'm just going to point to two things. There's probably a longer list, but for the sake of time, two things. People, stuff. Let's talk about people first. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 says this. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, which is the devil? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Some of you are like, say what? So this idea of being yoked, I have a picture here of oxen. Uh, one is having a hard time uh, getting with the program. The other one is, it's like, I'm ready to go. This is an unequal yoking. You wear a yoke so that those who are younger, those who are less experienced can learn from the older animal to understand how to plow, how to move forward, what to do. 
An unequal yoking in this case has to do with people. Whether it's boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. And I would even pull it into business associate and other partnerships. And then what does it look like to be unequally yoked? Well, it's really this balancing act of saying, I need to spend time with people who need Jesus, who are in the world, who have totally different values. I don't expect those people to do what God says because God's not their boss. I want to love them. And I want to walk with them. I want to share Jesus with them. I want to share the life to the fullest that I have experienced with them. I want to share my story. But at the same time, if, if all you do is spend time with people in the world, guess what? You're going to begin to look more and more like the people you're spending time with. All of a sudden, your values are going to be getting, getting kind of just chucked out the window. And like Solomon, all of a sudden, then you're going to be making compromises and things to make them happy instead of God happy. Bad company corrupts good character, Corinthians says. We have to be careful with our time that we spend with people in the world. At the same time, some of us are like, man, I'm really passionate. I'm going to do this. And we feel isolated, alone. What do you need? You need to spend time with people who walk with Jesus. If you've ever been a runner, using this analogy, you run so much faster, so much better. You have energy and sense of, of, of motion and, and uh, forward pro, um, momentum is the word. When you run with someone else, you run by yourself in a cross country race, you will run slower, you will not win. Even when you're in the lead, you have to be careful not to get too far out because you'll begin to slow down without the energy of others. The same is true in our Christian life. We must spend time with other believers who will help us grow in our faith. But some just spend time with people in the faith and they never venture over here to experience how exciting and adventurous it is to unfold the beauty of who God is to someone who doesn't know him. And the faith has become stale and stagnant. And you don't even know what life to the fullest looks like. And that sense of being spirit-led and can't wait to see how God's gonna use me begins to dull and diminish in this place. Wisdom dictates that we balance these two things. Probably for you, you're either heavy on one or heavy on the other. And God's speaking to you right now. He's showing you maybe where your heart has been divided or where you've decided to be comfortable. And he's trying to pull you into a place where you hold these two things in tension. And as I was praying about this, I feel like there's two words that God gave me. And man, you're gonna hear this over and over and over. You're gonna be so sick of these two words because I just believe in this season, there's two things that the church needs. The first is humility. We need to walk in humility. There has never been a time that in my lifetime that I remember that's been ever so divided or contentious than this time frame. And if we're gonna reflect the heart of the Father, we've gotta walk in humility. It doesn't mean that you, you just throw away your values and you disagree with the world, but it means you humbly engage. And I wanna take everybody on Facebook and give them a lesson in humility. Because Facebook, by and large, lacks humility. The other word is boldness. 
Because I think too many of us are comfortable. I'm going to heaven. I got my Christian friends. Don't bug me. Don't ask me to share Jesus with anybody. That sounds scary. It's time for you to be bold. Boldness and humility can coexist together. Do you know anybody who's bold and humble at the same time? By the way, if somebody says they're humble, they're not humble. So that's kind of a tricky deal. People are at the heart of this. That's why Paul as a writer says, who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Second thing, really quick, before I land this plane. Stuff. The love of money. 1 Timothy 6. One of the most misquoted scriptures in the entire Bible. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice money is not evil. Money's a great tool that God gives us and blesses us with to be able to bless others and live a good life. But the love of money will bring you to all sorts of griefs. You can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other. And the context of that in Matthew 6 is money. Matthew 6 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I just keep trying to invest in things of God. And it's amazing when I do, all of a sudden my heart begins to, to grow larger for those things. I had a farmer friend years ago and he came to me, a good friend. And he said, Andrew, I'm really convicted. I, I've, I'm trying to get the harvest done and we've been working seven days a week. And I believe that the Lord's leading me to give everybody the day off on Sundays. And I just... I'm nervous, but I want to trust God that if I do this, if I honor his day, then he's going to honor me and it's, we're going to get it all done. I said, I'm going to pray with you. And so we just began praying and he went through harvest. Sure enough, at the end of harvest, he came to me and said, you're never going to believe this. I'm like, well, I probably will. We got it all done. And these guys, they were so thankful. And my life, I feel so much closer to God because I'm spending the time. Sometimes it can't be Sundays that you have off. I get it but specific time set aside for God. Why? Because the pursuit of money and stuff isn't more important than pursuing God. Well, I just want to leave you with a question. It's the same question that Paul's asking in Galatians 5. What is it that's putting cracks in your heart? What is it that has divided your heart? How are you navigating these two things, spending time with people who need Jesus and making sure that you're also running with those who run, running in a way that you might win the prize? So is it a person in your life that's leading you away from God, that you need to evaluate that relationship? It is, a, is it a coworker or a peer or a boss, an environment or a place, the pursuit of money or stuff, an addiction to a substance or even the opposite sex? Is it pornography, overeating, over shopping? Just the idea of trying to escape. And that's become in that first place. Is it an issue of unwillingness to forgive someone else? And that's really fouled up your, your wholehearted devotion to God. So what is it? There are so many things that rival our hearts for God and sometimes they're good things. Sports can be something that can get in the first place of my life. That seems like a really weird thing. 
But I always ask myself, what's the first thing I do in the morning and the last thing I do at night? That should say something about my heart. And it does. If I want to read more about what player got traded onto the Giants, then really focus my, my life on God. I probably, I have, some, I have some work to do. But what is it for you? What is that good thing that's just too much of a good thing has become a not so good thing. Would you stand? I just want to pray with us. And that, that the Lord would shine his light on our hearts and that we would be able to move toward a wholehearted devotion toward the Father. Now, um, I want to invite the prayer team down. I know we've got some folks in the prayer team here and if you could just start coming down. This is a great day to either come down and you don't have to confess all your sins. No one's asking you to do that, but to say, here's the area I'm wrestling with. Will you please pray for me that I'll have the strength and the courage to be able to step out on these things and really depend on the Holy Spirit. This is not about working harder. This is about surrendering more. If you're working harder, you're moving toward a works salvation. If you're, work, if you're moving towards surrendering more, then you're really trusting the Holy Spirit that he's gonna give you everything you need for life and godliness. I believe it, Jesus. I believe that you spent the, sent the Holy Spirit to not only remind you of your words, but to speak to us those, those rhema words, those, those words that are timely in the moment so that we could step out in a full, wholehearted devotion. I pray that today you would show us where things are out of balance. Today, you would invite us into new places of building relationships with those who don't know you and who need you and who need to hear your messages and at the same time, help us to be bold and step out and hold on to our convictions and represent you well. Help us to be bold and humble. Help us to step toward places of wholehearted devotion for your kingdom's sake and we'll give you praise and honor in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks so much for coming. Make sure you grab your trash on the way out. And if you're on the stream, we'll see you next week.